Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't actually necessarily even need hope when things are okay. When you need hope most is when things are the most dark. That's when the light shines brightest. That's when you need the sense of something you can do to get out of this moment. Hello, this is Give a Hoot. I'm Oya. I'm Jaza. And I'm Mika. We are Wise Owl. Wise Owl is a consultancy firm that specializes in communication for social change. Here's part two of our two-part series on hope-based communication in the time of COVID. Please make sure to listen to part one if you haven't already. Our guest, communication strategist Thomas Coombs, talked about how, in order to move people into action, we must shift the narrative to one that is less about fear and more about hope. Less the problem, more the solution. In this episode, we talk about the balancing act of advocates and the practicality and universality of hope. Thomas, you mentioned earlier how um, with the coronavirus, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anxiety. But here in the Philippines, we also see another emotion. It's anger. There's a lot of anger when it comes to the failure to deliver or certain policies that don't make sense to a lot of people, especially the poorest of the poor here in the Philippines. Where does anger sit within hope-based communication? How does that work? So there's a civil rights activist said, Anger is the spark that starts the engine, but hope is the fuel that keeps it moving. All the emotions play a role. So when when we talk about hope, for me, it's not about feeling good in the moment. Hope is the belief that tomorrow can be better. Hope-based communication is about making people believe in alternatives that we put forward. So there's always a space for anger, but in the long term, anger can really lead to despondency. It saps energy and leaves people disappointed and tiring. How do you channel anger into constructive action for lasting change? When people are angry, it's the moment where you most need to give them the sense that there are actual practical solutions. Otherwise, you'll find that anger can very quickly be channeled into more division. A colleague called Krishna Gomez, who's from the Philippines, and I identified that the strategy of populist leaders is actually to encourage anger. It's based on creating a sense of conflict, of controversy, and of crisis. And we identified that NGOs need to come up with three C's of their own, which is community, cooperation, and culture. So we have to resist that temptation to get angry at our opponents and actually create the environment emotionally that makes people more likely to do the things we want, which is taking care of each other. Think of anger as a CO2 emission. Our side could get angry, but that anger is not just going to be something that makes our side mobilized. It's anger that's going to actually pollute the wider conversation in our society. There needs to definitely be a balance for the coronavirus. We need to be able to understand rationally what the danger is. We need to understand that in order for all of us also 
to do the, you know, hand wash, to avoid crowded places and all of that. But we also need to pay attention to the feelings. And it's the fear. For places like the Philippines, there is anger. We've seen also how anger can spark things. Not so long ago, there was a lot of anger with government and then government does respond to that anger. But it's a very interesting point that you make that we cannot solely rely on anger. We need to also focus on constructive, productive kind of actions that we can do. I think what makes coronavirus a very difficult challenge is that we need to stay at home. And the way we need to respond isn't the way we would have responded had we not been locked in our homes. And so there's a lot of these kinds of emotions and the feeling of isolation, of fear on top of anger. And my question is, can hope-based communication be seen as a realistic thing? You know, hope is something that you come through by dealing with sadness and anger. You come out at the other end with hope. You don't actually necessarily even need hope when things are okay. When you need hope most is when things are the most dark. That's when the light shines brightest. That's when you need the sense of something you can do to get out of this moment. But at the end of the day, and I think this is a question every communicator could ask himself, what does the world look like when you succeed? It's actually about empathy. We want people to see the world from other people's perspective, and we want them to have more compassion for each other. And then in asking that question, we realize, okay, we need to look at human behavior. So human rights shouldn't just be about the rights. It should also be about putting the human in human rights and thinking, how can we improve human behavior, human interactions? Again, as a communicator, we can ask ourselves, what is the ideal story that actually shows our ideas or our values at play? And that's where, you know, in this moment in COVID, where you can come to stories of people caring for each other, celebrating the health care professionals who are on the front line, the ordinary people who buy food for their neighbors or sing to each other from balconies. Taking a different issue briefly, for example, on refugees. We spend so much time trying to make people welcome refugees and migrants by talking about how much those people are suffering. But what we forgot about was actually it takes two to migrate. One person who moves, but another who welcomes them. And we actually didn't do enough work on the behavioral aspect of how do we make people in host countries be more welcoming of people who are arriving. A strategy that's emerging there is rather than just talking about the suffering that's driving people to come here, let's also tell the stories of the people who are welcoming those people. Say, maybe it's, that suggests that the future of human rights and other kinds of activism might be less about protests and more about, say, dinners where you have hosts welcoming the newcomers. <laughs> Something that we need to think about a lot as people are stuck in their homes, how can people support each other? What kind of actions can they take? Human rights activism was kind of born in the 60s and 70s when ordinary people were writing letters to political prisoners. And it was a very simple act of solidarity, but it was also an act of humanity. What we can try and think of is Caring for your fellow human, having empathy for other people, it's something that is natural, but you have to exercise, you have to practice. If we think of empathy as a muscle, we can ask ourselves in this situation and in any other situation, what are the activities that we can give to people for them to actually practice empathy, to practice hope and exercise those positive muscles that we want to see more of in society? So it's not just 
the job of the communicators because when you paint a picture of how you want things to be, there has to be movement towards that vision. And if you don't see that, people will just end up more cynical or disappointed. Our instinct has for a very long time to tell the story of the things that make us angry, you know, the failures of government, the things that aren't going the way we want. And I think what we need to learn practically in terms of communication is it's fine to do that, but we also need to show here are the things that worked. Here's how it did happen. And we can do more of that. So we need to show people above all that that change is possible. And so while we'll always have the temptation to say, here are the failures, let's also say, here are the signs of progress that show it can be done. An interesting lesson in this for us as activists that we don't want government to go away. We don't believe in a world with no government at all because we believe government is a tool that society uses to take care of each other. So if we every day say government is bad, our audience are going to think, oh, well, government is bad. So if we actually want the government to do a better job of taking care of people, we need to show exactly how it can do that. And for that, we also do need the stories of the things going right. Right now, I don't see where we're going. There's no end in sight. So that's also part of the source of the anxiety. How do you deal with that? It's very important that we give people the sense of agency and empowerment. There's an excellent philosopher called Martin Nussbaum, who's written a book called The Monarchy of Fear, in which she documents how damaging fear is in a society. And she makes this amazing point that when we're born, we're completely helpless. And actually that that fear, you know, that dependence on our parents is something that sort of runs through our life. And so we need that sense of where we're going, like the future we need to rebuild. So I think telling stories about building society built on care and interdependence, the key thing is not to talk about the world we're going to build after COVID-19, but actually that we start building it today. A simple change in language from maybe talking less about fighting things and more about building things. The challenge is not just telling people, here's the change we want to bring about, but actually invite them to be part of that. That sense of belonging and community is what reinforces value support for your ideas. My own country, Ireland, has made massive social changes. When I was born in Ireland in the 1980s, it was the most socially conservative country. And there was a lot of fear of the outside world and the changes happening. And Ireland had two referenda recently that gave everyone the right to marry. And it ended some very restrictive laws on abortion. So it gave women the right to have abortions. And those campaigns weren't won by telling people to change their mind. So you had a lot of Catholic voters who were pro-life. And instead of telling them not to be pro-life anymore, it encouraged them to have compassion and to care for the people in their lives who wanted to make those different decisions. And so what happened there was you had lots of Irish Catholics who said, I still believe that these things are not right, but I also believe that I want to care for the other people in my community. And so it gave those people the opportunity, rather than sort of threatening them or telling them they were wrong or they should feel guilty, it gave them an opportunity to create a new, more caring, more modern Ireland. And so it actually invited them to be part of change I think there's a, that's a key thing for us as communicators is we really need to understand that our audiences are really complex people who can have a lot of different ideas in their mind. And so the trick is to actually understand how they're feeling 
but also never think that people who articulate views that disagree with our own are lost to us forever, that we can actually find other ways to connect to people. So to bring that back to this coronavirus moment, I think what we can look at is as much as possible, how can we give people the chance to already start acting in the new way we want to see? We've already seen great steps in that respect with the stories of people who take care of each other, people pulling together to take care of the most vulnerable people in society. Actually, there are a lot of examples here in the Philippines. And me, as someone who's stuck at home and I basically pay attention to the news, it feels like a bomb that relieves you, in a way, from mm. all of this stress. When you start to see good news, when you start to see members of government who are just working and doing action and are able to come up with faster solutions, when you're able to see schools and scientists come up with innovation or local communities kind of band together, artists, raise money and all of that, it does help. It quells the fear in a way, but it also, at least for me personally, it also inspires me to do more for the communities. And it seems like that might be a very human thing, a very universal human experience that might cut across cultures. Is that correct to assume that? The key word is about universality. I think over the last few years, there's been so much talk about the things that divide us and not enough talk about the things we all have in common. And I think we need to change our own perception of what it means to be an activist and to try and improve the world. It's not just about showing the problems in the world. We always have to do that. Coming back to the brain science, we see that when people feel joy, when people are affirmed by culture, and basically culture is a beautiful way of telling stories, that triggers the parts of their brain that we need them to trigger, which is where they feel empathy, where they care for other people, where they're likely to take positive action. I talk about hope, but I think we're also going to need at some point a moment of healing. Lots of people are very sad they're going to die. They're going to suffer. They're going to be sick. We're all going to be very traumatized after this moment. I think we could probably learn a lot from how the Philippines recovered from the horrible tsunami. How do we heal collectively as a society? As you were saying, this has been a moment of universal experience. We've all gone through this moment. And hopefully the, the greatest learning we can all take from it is that reminder that at the end of the day, we're all human. Thanks for listening and thanks to the people who made this possible. Specifically, Puma Podcast, The Spark Project, and our backers. Shout out to Trisha Aquino, our producer, and Mark Casalian, our sound guy. I'm Oya. I'm Jaza. And I'm Mika. Give a Hoot is a podcast for communicators about social change. Please listen to our future episodes. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. And look for WiseAllPH on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium. You can visit our website, wiseall.ph. And we'd love to hear from you. Send your feedback to hoot at wiseall.ph. Use your voice. Give a Hoot. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.